Have you ever had one of those mornings where you wake up and your heart is racing because you just know that you've slept through your alarm? And you don't know what to do. Immediately, you become really anxious because you're going to be late for work. You're going to be late for school. Uh, you start thinking of all the things that you had to do that you're planning to do in the morning. Uh, and then you start to feel really disappointed in yourself. Like, oh, I'm such a failure. Why would I do this? Why would I sleep through? And, and, and at some point, that disappointment gives way to anger, and you're just angry at, at something. You're angry at your alarm clock. Why didn't you go off? What, what happened? Something has set me off like this. And, and you're filling to the brim with all of these things, and then suddenly you remember it's Saturday. And just like that, such relief, right? Oh, I can sleep in. I can relax. I don't have to worry about all of those things anymore. And in just a brief moment, remembering has a way of completely transforming the present moment. Maybe another image. You know, moving from a, an anxious morning, have any of you ever had a restless night? A sleepless evening? Maybe it was a racing mind. Or maybe it was a sinking heart that kept you from falling asleep. And sometimes it's not even that you're not tired. It's almost that you're too tired to even relax or fall asleep. And that may sound strange, but this is what grief can feel like sometimes. This last week I was reading a little bit of C.S. Lewis in a, in a book he has called A Grief Observed. And he describes grief as someone who is so dog-tired that, that he would lay in bed shivering on a cold night because he doesn't even have the energy to get up and get a blanket. This is what grief does to a person. There, there's an even older uh, Christian uh, from centuries ago who called a night like this the dark night of the soul. A night where there's no comfort at all to be found. Well, this is where our text is going to pick up today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Psalm 77. Or if you have some kind of device with the Bible on it that you use, this is where our text is today. Kind of this dark night of the soul. Um, while you're turning there, over the past couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Remembering God. We've been exploring the importance of remembrance in our life of faith so we talked about how it's so important for us to remember because we're so prone to forget. And that remembering changes our perspective in celebration and in lament that remembering is rooted in history, real people, and real events. And last week we talked about remembering in celebration. We looked back on the great deeds of God in creation and covenant. As we looked at Israel's deliverance last week, we saw that God delivered them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea and the wilderness, and into the Promised Land. Maybe some of you remember some of these things. We talked about how that moves us to celebration. Well, this week, I want to I zoom in on what does it look like to remember in times of lament, in times of pain, you know, if God's 
deliverance is out of, through, and into. What is it like whenever you feel stuck in the through? How do we respond when it feels like we are stranded in the wilderness or sinking in the sea? Well, whether it's an anxious morning or a sleepless night, I think that we'll find that remembering is a ready remedy. So Psalm 77, let's read this together. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the mighty waters. And yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for showing us who you are. 
giving us these words of truth that do not shy away from dark nights of the soul. As we search these scriptures this morning, I pray that you would give us sharp minds and soft hearts that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I've been reading through this psalm this week and been preparing for this morning, this text has felt particularly sacred to me. And, and yes, all of our scriptures are, are sacred, um, but, but this one is not only a sacred scripture, it's also a deeply personal lament. And so as we talk through this psalm together this morning, I want to do so with a sense of sacredness and tenderness of the pain that we see and feel through the text. And before we look more closely at it, I just want to give you kind of what I see overall uh, through this psalm. I see kind of four movements or four main sections. Each one is about five verses long. Verses one through five, the psalmist first reaches out to God. And then in verses six through 10, the psalmist responds to that experience. And then in verses 11 through 15, the psalmist reaches to God once more. And then in 16 through 20, the psalmist responds to that second experience. And what we get, I think, is this process of what it is like to grieve with God. It's a reaching out, waiting and reaching out again. We see this movement in the psalm from from despair and doubt to hope and help. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look through each one of these. This this first section, verses 1 through 5. I think that these opening verses show us the debilitating nature of grief. As we look through it at first, the psalmist is crying out to God. It says he's seeking the Lord. He stretches out his hand, but then his soul refuses to be comforted. And cries turn to moans. His spirit faints and his eyes grow tired but can't close. In verse 1, he's crying aloud to God, but by the time you get to verse 4, he can't even speak. And this shows us that that despair is, is truly debilitating. It turns down the lights. It narrows our perspective So that all that we can see is pain and the sadness that's right in front of us. And it feels like it will never end. It will never go away. In moments like these, there's no sight of hope because the darkness is crowding in. I think the psalm shows us that grief has a way of wearing us down. And and the reality is, is that not one of us is exempt from this kind of experience. And, and what I, what I want to say about this is that this kind of experience is okay. If you've seen or experienced a dark night of the soul, this is part of what it is to be human. 
And so to those who are very familiar with them, maybe wrestling through one right now, I just want to again say it is okay. It's okay to experience this right here in the center of our holy scriptures. We have the voice of someone familiar with suffering and they are crying out to God. To feel pain, to face depression, to grieve and to mourn, these things are not a result of lacking in faith. You just need to hear that. I think that, that often the church has not done well at responding to grief or responding to depression or responding to pain, has often kind of pushed it to the side, has often tried to run beyond it with sometimes cheap platitudes and easy words. There's nothing easy about this. I think that one of the shortest, in fact, the shortest verse in the Bible might be one of the most profound. It's John 11, verse 35. It's two words. Jesus wept. Even Jesus wasn't exempt from grief. At the death of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, Jesus wept. And Jesus knew full well that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Nonetheless, Jesus wept. Weeping is not a lack of faith. It wasn't a lack of faith that moved Jesus to weep. It was the reality of grief. Jesus knows the pain of grief. In fact, he probably knows it even better than most of us. Because in the end, he was abandoned by all of his friends and followers, delivered over to be tortured and crucified. Jesus knows pain, and he knows grief. And so in our times of grief and despair, in our dark nights of the soul, I think we can take comfort in the knowledge that our Savior knows what it is to weep. And not just a single tear that, that often we'll see in, in the Jesus movies that they make. Weep. This comes from deep within. Jesus knows what it is to weep. And so I want to say it's not whether or not we face pain that determines our faith. It's where we go when we face pain that does. I'll say more about that in a moment, but, but I also want to say to those of you who maybe, you know, this, this isn't you. Maybe, you know, you, last week we talked about rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and you're like, yeah, that's me. That's, that's fantastic. We need those joyful hearts. But there's also a time for grieving. The call of scriptures is not only to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep. And so I want to encourage really all of us to be hospitable to grief. Not only to the grief of others, but to our own grief as well. 
I hope that we can tend to the grieving with the same kind of sacredness that I spoke about earlier. Our response when it says that Jesus wept shouldn't be to say, oh, come on, snap out of it. You're about to raise him from the dead anyway. Rather, we should pause and weep with him. The call is to weep with those who weep, to know the sacredness of tears. And this kind of thing might be uncomfortable for some of us. And I think that a lot of times we're uncomfortable with the grief of others because we're uncomfortable with our own grief. And we need to be, as I said, hospitable, not only to others, but also to ourselves. We live in a really busy and a noisy culture, and it drowns out the cries of our hearts. And I think some of us really welcome that noise, because we would much rather not hear what the cries of our hearts are. But to sit in silence and to let whatever is in you rise up is almost too much to bear. But look at the psalmist here. This is someone who knows the cries of their hearts. They have looked inward and they've let those cries rise out of them, crying aloud, he says. This is someone who's aware of and honest about their heartache. And I think that's the call for all of us in this passage. For us to be completely honest with ourselves about where we are, to be honest with others, to explore the depths of our own hearts, both the joys and the pains, and to welcome the hearts of others. Because like I said, it's not whether or not you experience pain that determines your faith but rather where you go when you experience that pain. And the psalmist goes to God with it, right? It says he cries out to God in verse 1, and then in verse 3 it says that he thinks of God. And yet, sometimes when we go to God with our pain, it's not immediately fixed. It doesn't all just get better. And so we're left with all kinds of questions, You know, God, I'm crying out to you. Why isn't this going away? Why isn't this changing? And despair gives way to doubt. And that's exactly what happens with the psalmist here. In the the next verses, verses 6 through 10, the psalmist raises all kinds of questions. He he asks, "Will will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? These are the questions that are racing through the psalmist's mind and heart. And at first sight, these almost seem blasphemous. Right? Do you remember the story that we briefly talked about last week when the glory of God passed in front of Moses? God said as he passed in front of Moses, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to the thousandth generation. 
right? And here in these verses, the psalmist questions every single one of those statements. The psalmist is not only honest with himself, he's honest with God, about God. He asks the question, is God who he says he is? And I want to say the same things about doubt as I did about grief. That for those of us who wrestle with questions and doubts, it is okay to wrestle with these things. Give voice to your questions. Ask them out loud, just like the psalmist. Even Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And I want to say this, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. I think indifference is the opposite of faith. A person wouldn't be wrestling with doubt or asking questions if they didn't have faith. Someone without faith would would just be indifferent. They wouldn't be asking questions. They wouldn't be wrestling with anything. And so having doubts does not mean forsaking faith. Rather, I, I would even say that doubts are part of growing in our faith. That to doubt means that you're being honest with yourself and you're being honest with God. And you're trying to figure out how do these two things fit together. It takes faith to ask questions like that. And I want to say again, to those who maybe aren't in the midst of wrestling with doubt, maybe that's not where you are, may we be hospitable to those who do wrestle. There's no reason to be afraid of doubts and questions. God isn't afraid. God's not afraid of them. God's not threatened by them. And I think a lot of times, maybe we feel threatened by doubts and by questions. If I'm honest, I probably should. If, if, you know, if all of this isn't true, then I'm out of the job, right? Like, you know, we can feel threatened by questions. But God is not threatened by our doubts. If he were, then these questions would not find themselves right here in the middle of our holy scriptures. And look, we often give Thomas a hard time. You know, we call him Doubting Thomas. We give him a hard time for questioning the resurrection of Jesus, right? But how did Jesus respond to Thomas? Was Jesus afraid? Was he threatened? Was he even angry? No. Jesus merely held out his hand and said to Thomas, Come, feel my wounds, see my hands. And so just like Jesus, I hope we can be a people who welcome those with doubts, with questions. I believe that doubt can actually lead us closer to Christ if we let them. That's what I did for Thomas. Thomas received an invitation to put his hand in the side of Jesus. And I think that's what it does for the psalmist here as well. 
You see, after facing despair and doubt, the psalmist finally arrives at the root of his pain in verse 10. He says, It is my grief that the right hand of God has changed. This is the fear that lies underneath everything else in this psalm. The psalmist wonders, has God changed? Is God not who he said he was? And for some reason, I just imagine a deep sigh right here, right after verse 10. Because the psalmist has finally found the words to give to his experience. And just imagine the mix of feelings that exist right here. First, maybe there's some measure of relief, having finally found the right words to to understand what it is you're experiencing. But then there's the fear of what those words might actually mean. After all, if God has changed, then what can I count on? And then I can imagine some measure of shame coming in. If God has changed, did I cause it? Is this my fault? Has God changed towards me? This is the whole process of grief unrolling all at once. And so I just imagine this deep sigh here. This is my grief. But then the psalm begins to take a turn. In verse 11, the darkness of doubt and despair finally begins to scatter. With doubt and despair, sometimes the way forward is actually back. This is what it means to remember. Sometimes when we are hostage to the present moment, when all we can see in front of us is pain and sadness, remembering is the way toward freedom. As a side note, I think this is why counseling can be such a great gift to actually begin to talk through experiences that we've had, to give voice to those things. Sometimes the way forward is back. And I want to say there's a big difference between sentimental nostalgia and true remembering. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Look back at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I consider the days of old, I remember the years long ago, I commune with my heart in the night, I meditate and search my spirit. This is sentimental nostalgia. The psalmist is remembering the good old days and and looking at what it makes his heart feel. But then look at verses 11 and 12. Here the psalmist says, I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. Do you see the difference between these? The difference between the days of old and your wonders of old. We can see how grief has narrowed the psalmist's vision. And the psalmist couldn't even see God or anyone else. 
But now we see a turn toward God. The psalmist actually begins to speak to God. The language shifts from me and I to you. And then to the rest of the people of God, down in verses 14 and 15, you are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And I think this is the difference between complaint and lament. This is the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. And, and before we get too far, I don't think we should blame the psalmist for his pain. We shouldn't blame him for being too selfish. You know, if you had just been able to think about God and others, you would have lightened up already. Grief is real. Like we've already said, it truly is debilitating. It presses the darkness in and keeps a person from even being able to see God and others. And the psalmist was stuck there for a while. But moving past nostalgia into true remembrance, the psalmist finally finds hope. And that's the difference between complaint and lament, between worldly grief and godly grief. The difference is hope. Hope offers a way forward. It's a small light amidst that darkness. It's a broader perspective amidst the narrow limits of grief. I have a professor from grad school who says, hope is remembering the future. Hope is remembering the future. That's exactly what we see the psalmist do here. The way forward is back. And so these final verses, we see the psalmist begin to remember the future. The first half of the psalm was a movement from despair to doubt, and then the second half shifts from hope to remembering and receiving God's help. In verses 16 through 20, the psalmist begins to remember the future by recounting a very specific story of God helping God's people. So verses 16 through 18, the psalmist says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies thundered, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. I think this is sort of a different take on Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. You know, we usually have this really romantic kind of cartoon image of it. Moses walks up to the water, he lifts his staff, the waters part, the people happily cross through. But the scene we see here is one of chaos, of fear. And just imagine, you know, they've, they've just fled from Egypt, and they come to the water and they go, oh no, what do we do? And fear begins to bubble up in them. And then whenever the waters do part, yes, there's some hope in it, but this is terrifying. This is a natural anomaly 
right? There's winds blowing, there's thunder clapping. This isn't an easy and happy romantic moment. It's terrifying. Can they even trust the ground enough to take steps out into the midst of that? And as I'm reading this, I wonder if the chaos of this scene is anything like the fear and doubt that the psalmist has already described before. Before we have the cries of the psalmist, and here we have the clap of thunder. Before there was the fainting spirit, the, the movement of darkness in, and here we have the trembling depths of the waters. By pausing to remember this moment in Israel's history, the psalmist is no longer alone in his grief. These fears and doubts have been faced by the whole company of Israel. And God met them there. Which leads to the final verses. In verse 19 and 20, the psalmist writes, Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the mighty waters. And yet your footprints were unseen You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. By remembering God's wonders of old, the psalmist realizes that his fear back in verse 10 was actually a lie. His fear, has God changed? That's a lie. He realizes that God's way of deliverance has always been just what we talked about last week, out of, through, and into. And the psalmist finds himself in the midst of a through season. Through the sea, through the mighty waters, this is the way of God. And I think this is the paradox of the gospel that the way out of Egypt and into the promised land is through the wilderness, that the way out of the grave and into the resurrection is through the cross. The way up is down. The way forward is back. And even though we can't see God's footprints, this is holy ground. That The tears of grief are sacred. And so in times of despair and doubt, we can trust that there is hope and help. When our hands are stretched out, we can trust that they won't stay empty. That God is leading his people like a flock by the hand. God is with us, and we are with one another. So let us take one another's hands. Let's be hospitable to grief. Let's honestly face our doubts and questions. And let us remember the deeds of the Lord together. God is with us in every season out of, through, and into. We're never alone.
His way is through the mighty waters. He leads us like a flock, hand in hand.